0: I'm going to be reading from Genesis chapter 43 this morning, the entire chapter. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, "'Bring the men into the house, and slaughter an animal, and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon.' The man did as Joseph told him, and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid, because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, "'It is because of the money, which was replaced in our sacks the first time, that we are brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us, to make us servants and seize our donkeys.' And the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed down their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out. For his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. I'm just going to pray before Barry comes. Thank you, God, that you are our hope, our never-ending hope, that you will not forsake us. God, I thank you that even though we can only see What is around us, we cannot see the future. God, we know that you are in control of everything. And as we see from this historical account of Joseph and Jacob and Benjamin and Simeon and the brothers, that God, you have everything under control. You are providential. You are completely in power. And God, we can trust in your control. God, I pray that you would help us to surrender ourselves to your wisdom and your power and that we would not lift ourselves up and put ourselves in your place to judge you and what you do, God, because we are ignorant and you are wise. God, please work in our hearts with your word and with this preaching and with your Holy Spirit, God, that we would know more of your character, that we would know more of your love, and God, we would be more submitted to you and to love you more. I ask this in Christ's name, amen.
1: Thank you for giving your attention to the lengthy reading of God's word. I feel like I am trying to wrap my arms around something this morning that is much too large for me to get my arms around. Many, many poignant parts of this story, an emotional Joseph weeping aside from his brothers. and a suddenly courageous Judah who speaks sacrificially and loyally and lovingly to a father who needs convincing and that father, a father who is groping in darkness looking to find some light to come into his darkness and so much in his life and in his heart that needs to be sanctified and taken away by almightiness. But I want you to lift your eyes to the broader context for a moment this morning, I was reading through Proverbs this week and came across Proverbs fifteen thirty-one that says, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. You know what life-giving rebuke is? What a great phrase that is. And that is the context of the story which we find ourselves right now. If you're just joining us for the first time in this part of the chapter, we've been going through this part of Genesis and the story of Joseph and Jacob for quite a number of weeks. This part of the story has to do with a life-giving reproof from God for a family that is experiencing a divine intervention, a divine intervention of mercy in order to wake them up wake them up to God to reconcile them and to unite them, but using circumstances that are severe. So the chapter opens with these words. In the King James, it says the the famine was very sore. In the ESV, it says the salmon... the (laughs) 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 Uh, 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 The famine was very severe. And God is using circumstances that are very severe in order to show mercy to a family. That's why I used the title that I borrowed from a man named Bruce Waltke called A Severe Mercy. There's severity on on both sides of Jacob and his family. On the one side is the famine which is very severe and on the other side is the severity of the words of Joseph who says that he spoke very severely to these brothers and so that this family is hemmed in. But what they are blind to, what Jacob in this part of the story still has no idea of, and we'll get to that part of the story, and it'll be wonderful when Joseph rips the mask off and and says, it's me, and that'll be a story of, of revelation. But this is a story of sanctification, and it is a story of sanctification where Jacob and his brothers are still blind to what is really going on. They have no idea... That the path that they are on in such severe circumstances really is a path of mercy, a severe mercy. They are hemmed in by severe circumstances in order that God would show the mercy. And what they don't know is that Joseph is on the throne. What they're blind to still in, in this part of the story is that they're safe, they're saved. Joseph is ruler over Egypt. But not yet. Storytelling is a wonderful device, a wonderful tool. If you read stories, you have, you know, the the tool that is used where the author is able to develop two sides of the story. And you, as the reader, have the privilege of seeing and knowing both sides of the story. That is what is exactly what's going on in this story. We, as the reader, we can see what's going on. We know what's going on in Joseph's life. We know who he is, and Jacob doesn't. And so there's this tension that still exists in the text that Jacob does not know. He is still blind to all that God has in store for him. And as a reader in the story, you just want to jump in and you want to be a counselor and a friend and a comforter to Jacob and you say, Jacob, it's okay, it's all right. These are the words that Jesus used in John 14. He says, I'm going to send you a comforter. I'm going to send you a counselor for this very reason, to say to you, Barry, it's okay. It's all right. You know that what God has in store for you, even though you are are blind to so much of what God has in store for you, nevertheless, trust in him. Your son is on the throne. There's more going on than what the eyes can see. I hope you recognize those words from our going through the book of Revelation. And you just want to jump into the story that Jacob, it's okay, you have no idea what's going on. Just like the world right now, right? All the seals that are, are being opened and the lamb is ruling them. And we have to trust, we have no idea what's going on. And John comforts the churches, saying there's a whole lot more going on than what you can see with your eyes. And so we get from this story a wonderful working definition of providence. Providence, a very significant word in spiritual vocabulary. And it is simply this, that God has a plan. I hope you know that that simple truth about God's providence. God has a plan. But that's only half of providence. There's the other half. The other half of providence is that God has a plan even when we're blind to it. And that's what this story is all about. God has a plan, even when we are blind to it. Jacob, his brothers, are still blind to all that God has in store for them, and they're being sanctified through the hemmed-in narrow passageway that God is calling them to walk through. So here's the main point of the story. If I've already lost you, I hope that you can at least get this main point. That God, it is a story about God, after all. It's not a story about Joseph. Or even ultimately about Jacob, it is a story about God, and God is hemming Jacob and his family in mercifully, but through a narrow passageway <laughs> like the narrow passageway we all came through to get into this world, <laughs> a very tight, constricting place that you that is difficult and, and smaller than than you are, but being forced through out into a world where there is liberty and love. A narrow passageway in order that God would awaken them and unite them. See, God's dealing with irony in this family. Do you know what the word irony means? It means that there, there's a contradiction. And the contradiction in Jacob's family, the irony in Jacob's family is this. That God has put his name upon them. And the name that God has put upon these people is is his own. A people, these are my people called by my name. The irony, God help us from this irony. God save us from this irony because we are a people too, 1 Peter 3. We are a people, a royal priesthood, a nation. The irony is that there's no connection to God with these people. It's evident in their character. It's evident in their relationships with one another. It's evident in their self-absorption. It's evident in their insubordination to all kinds of authority. And God is dealing with it. This is the divine intervention. A mission of mercy, but it is a severe mercy. You say, well, why doesn't God just take the famine away? If God is so big and so powerful, why doesn't he just make make the, make the, not the salmon, but the famine go away? You wonder, well, God's done that too. Why doesn't he just make it all go away if he's so big and so great? don't ask me how I know the words questions of a skeptic and the answer to that is this the reason God doesn't just take the famine away is because God's intervention has a whole lot more to do than just material salvation just material provision and salvation it is a spiritual awakening there's a whole lot more that needs to go on in Jacob's family than just wheat as God is reconciling a family to an awakening, a family, to God. Two simple points I'm going to work through. The first one is that that Jacob, it's about how Jacob stumbles forward and about the brothers, how the brothers step up. Jacob, first of all, stumbling forward. There's two ways you can stumble. You can stumble through foolishness. Jacob here does not stumble from foolishness, but he's stumbling through his weakness, from foolishness, into the arms of the Almighty. You know that you can stumble the right way? <laughs> if you're backed up onto a precipice, guess what? Which way you stumble makes a huge difference. Lord, help us if that's all we can do is to stumble in the right direction. And that's exactly what Jacob does in this story. He stumbles before the throne. He stumbles into the arms of all mightiness. This is not a father leading his father with strength and courage. and saying, okay, boys, this is the way it's going to be. You're going to go to Egypt. You're going to bring this gift. You take my son, Benjamin. God will be with you. God will help you. All of you will come back together, and God will provide. This is not a father who is full of faith and strength and courage. This is a man who is at his end. This is a man who all he can do in the darkness is reach for the the silver cord that's offered him from heaven, to come out of darkness, to stumble in the right direction. And it becomes this, actually this little part of the story becomes a definitive moment in, in redemption history. From this point on, God will refer to his entire people, the nation of of Israel, by the name that Jacob was given, Israel, but often by the name Jacob, simply Jacob. If you look through the scriptures and you see all of the different places where God simply calls his people Jacob, this is what you'll discover, something to do with this very definitive moment in the life of Jacob. This is what God wants. For example, this is just one example from Isaiah chapter forty. Isaiah chapter 41 many of you will know these particular words fear not you worm Jacob I <laughs> love that divine perspective on the human condition you little crawly thing but the word is Jacob why I think it goes back to this very moment in time where Jacob who is now called Israel his covenant name stumbles towards God towards his throne but this is what it said. I, my servant Jacob, I've chosen. And I took you from the ends of the earth and called you from its farthest corner, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not. I am with you. I will not cast you off. The marvelous point in the story. Actually, Judah from this point also is known, for example, in Psalm 114 as God's sanctuary. Not only in Joseph's life but or Jacob's life but in Judah's life it's a definitive moment for now on Judah will be considered the leader of Israel even though he's a third-born but what is it what is it about Jacob that is so defining at this moment in his life and it is this very profound word of Almighty he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty imagine Jacob just use your imagination the man he's at his end he's hemmed in on every side he's got death on one side he's got death on the other side he's got the threats of the famine he's got the threats of the ruler of his of, uh, of Egypt he's not standing proud he's in a stooped heap as I said he's falling in the right direction Buzz Lightyear would say I'm not flying I'm falling with style this is falling with wisdom but he is a stooped man and God has put his divine finger upon all that must be transformed in Jacob as I said earlier this isn't a story yet about revelation of Joseph's great reveal this is a story of transformation in Jacob and in his family. All of his selfishness. Right at this point in the story Jacob, it's, it's all about him. Why did you have to tell him that? Why did you have to tell him about my son? Why, why did you do that? Oh, I'm going to lose him. I'm going to lose this. Oh, you can, It's just completely self-absorbed. His fears. Oh, I'm going to lose everything I know. if I give up Benjamin. His idolatry. Let's call Benjamin what he really is find a fear not very hard right find a fear pull back the curtains surprise guess what you find you find an idol that's how idols govern Jacob was a believer I'm a believer you're hopefully a believer but you know sometimes even believers sometimes even though we have faith our lives are actually animated by fear more than they are by faith It's a significant point of transformation in the heart and life of a believer for God to put his finger on those idols and to say, this is not belonging to you. And it is a profound moment in Jacob's life where he stretches out a hand that is only weakness and he grabs that divine cord from heaven and says, if God Almighty if god almighty be merciful see this is the returning of the language of the covenant this is the language of jacob's grandfather abraham that's why he is called israel in this particular passage almighty is covenantal language when god revealed himself to abraham in 17 genesis 17:1, god said to abraham i am the lord almighty This is the word through which God's people lay hold of as the promise of how God will make a path for his people. Isaac said the same thing to Jacob when he sent him off. He says, may God Almighty be with you. When God revealed himself to Jacob in Genesis chapter 35, it was the same thing. I have put my name upon you. You will be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because I am God Almighty. It's the word. It is the path for Jacob. If he doesn't find this path, there is no other path. He is completely lost. And the same thing, of course, will be true in the book of Exodus when Moses says, what's going on here? How are you going to do that? Pharaoh is actually a pretty strong man. Exodus chapter 6, and God says to Moses, with a strong hand, with an almighty hand, people will come out. The word almighty is used 31 times in the book of Job. 31 times in the book of of Job alone where where Job is grasping and, and contending with and ultimately being resolved into submission to almightiness. The book of Revelation uses it over and over and over again as was read earlier from Revelation chapter 15. You're going to be given a harp, not a real harp, of course, that would be cruel, but a harp in order to sing What are you going to sing you're going to sing the song of moses which is god almighty it is the song of god's people george crowley years ago wrote the words to this hymn that we sang a few minutes ago stoop to my weakness mighty as thou art and i hope that stooping has Gripped your imagination this morning because Jacob isn't the only one stooping here God also is stooping to Jacob's weakness and it's a story that characterizes almightiness it's a, perhaps a word that you've heard your whole life God is almighty not some mighty not part mighty almighty it's an incredible word but for some people it's austere for some people it's an indifferent power but this is an almightiness in this story an almightiness that stoops an almightiness that condescends it stoops to Jacob's weakness and Jacob stoops in weakness but God stoops not in weakness he stoops in mercy that's what mercy is it's, it's almightiness stooping to us when we are blind to God's plan as Jacob still is here blind. This is the path. And the purpose of this story is, I believe, in the power of the Holy Spirit as part of all scripture that is profitable for teaching, instruction, and reproof to convince us of this simple truth that God is great and God is good. I've heard it said, people say it to me quite often. God is good, God is good all the time. And I absolutely agree. But it's only half the truth, right? God is good. But who wants a small God who is good? (laughs) Who wants a weak God that is good? God is good, God is great. And never going to stop being great. The second part is the brothers. The brothers step up. The brothers are in the midst of a test. Saw that last time in Genesis chapter 42, where Joseph is using twin tools. The two tools are this. First of all, his authority. He has power. He has dominion over his brothers, and he uses that authority. He uses that power to test them. But the second tool that he has is his hidden identity. They have no idea who he is. And those twin tools are being used by God to intervene in this family, to save this family, to, to wake them up, as I said earlier, to save them from an irony of a people of God who have no connection to God. And so the story has this tension in it with the brothers. Will they step up? Will, how will they respond to the test where there is severity on both sides? Will they be loyal? They have been nothing but disloyal. Will they be submissive? They have been nothing but insubordinate so far in the stories that we have read. Will they be honest? They've done nothing but lie to Jacob for 20 years now. For example, about the whereabouts of Joseph. Will they care about Simeon who's in jail? Or will they leave him for dead like they left Joseph for dead in a pit? And that is also part of the tension of the story that is built in. And the transformation seems to begin with Judah. Judah, not the oldest, the third oldest, who from this moment on will be considered the functional leader of Israel. And Judah steps up. And he steps up with words to convince his father. And his words are are cogent. His words are are sincere. They're loyal. They're honest. They're, They're passionate and there are self-sacrificing. In the last chapter, Reuben offered his children to Jacob if he didn't return. Thanks, Reuben, that's really helpful. If I don't come back, Dad, just kill my children, all right? That's what grandfathers want to do. When you've lost two sons, let's kill two grandchildren. That's really helpful, Reuben. And in this place, Judah doesn't offer his children, he offers himself, all that he has, all of his inheritance, everything. In a persuasive and convincing words to his father Jacob who needs convincing you know what words matter without these words Jacob doesn't find his path words matter convincing words matter words of conviction words of passion words of self-sacrificing they matter they make a difference in people's lives and the words we use make all the difference in the world it's one of the greatest places of sanctification I'm tempted simply to be mute most of the time because I feel my words are not helpful but there are times where we need to step up and we need to speak one of my favorite proverbs is chapter 16 verse 23 that said the heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Judas' heart here is wise. And there is a persuasiveness to his lips. Notice that there's food very much involved in the story. A significant part of the story, two places that food are, is mentioned. A food and eating in the scriptures are metaphors for peace and unity. Hopefully that's true of our households. (laughs) Why do you eat together? Well, part of the reason is because you want to experience peace and unity. That's why Isaiah 24 describes God's final deed with us as feasting us. On my holy mountain, Isaiah 24 says, God, I will feast you. And we'll eat together. It's a a symbol of unity and peace with God himself. So the food that the brothers bring, all of the all of the things that Jacob says, Israel says to to take along, the almonds and the pistachios and the gum and the honey, things that were probably grown natural in the land, not cultivated, that somehow were enduring through the famine. The brothers that they bring, or the food that the brothers bring, is a symbol of submission. A symbol of submission and of peace to Joseph, signaling the desire for peace. And the meal that Joseph offers to his brothers is not a trap like the brothers think that it is. It's not a place where they're going to be put in a dungeon underneath the ruler's house like a lot of rulers had dungeons underneath the house, very convenient. Invite them for dinner, put them in jail. Rather, it was a meal that Joseph intended for unity and for peace. But the brothers don't get it yet. They're driven by memories. Imagine what the memories of the brothers must be. They themselves threw Joseph in a pit. Have you ever been driven by memories more than by wisdom? Your thinking becomes irrational. They're driven by memories of their ill behavior and also a guilty conscience. A lot of Christians are driven by a guilty conscience. The marvelous story of a conscience being awakened in the brothers but through the rest of the story we'll see now the problem is how to massage the conscience of the brothers. How to convince them actually of goodness and not harm towards them. A very significant thing in the life of a believer. Not only to be awakened but to be assured. And what they are convinced of is this that 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 Joseph is out for their harm. It must be for our harm. And then they were convinced of it also in Genesis 37 when God, when Joseph revealed to them his dream. Joseph said, this is a dream that I had. And it was a dream of of his brothers bowing down to them. And they they were convinced of the same irrational idea back then. Oh, if you have dominion, if you have power, if you have authority, it must be for our harm. They were biased against the word of God. They, they judged the word of God as being against them. Something a lot of Christians do with when God reveals his way. They don't trust it. And this is the grand awakening moment. Where the brothers, the light starts to go on and the brothers begin to grasp this idea that all along the way from that dream, all of the things that God intended through that dominion, through that authority, through the power that was revealed to them that Joseph will one day have, is not to harm them, not to destroy them, not to humiliate them, but to save them. You see what's going on right now in this story? All the things that they felt threatened by all the things that they were opposed to, all of the things that they were insubordinate to, right now they're standing in the presence of deliverance through the very thing that they feared. It's a marvelous thing. And imagine, imagine again. Use your imagination of what what Joseph sees as he looks down and he sees now not 10 knees bowing, but 11 knees. His little brother Benjamin is there. And in the bowing of Benjamin's knee, the dream is fulfilled. It wasn't fully fulfilled before because Benjamin wasn't there. All of his brothers were not bowing. But as Joseph looks, he sees now the dream is being fulfilled. And imagine what Joseph must see. Of course, he's moved by emotion for his brother, a very, very dear brother that he hasn't seen in 20 years. And he's alive and he's well and he's, and he's in her presence. But there's more to Joseph's emotion than mere family sentiment. As he himself begins to grasp and realize all of the things that he has endured, all the stuff that he's gone through, the dungeons and the prisons and all of the the injustice that he has endured. And here are his brothers all bowing down to him and he is going to deliver them. He's going to save them. And not only that, but not just materially, but also completely transforming their character in the process. Imagine the mercy that Joseph sees is being poured out upon his family. That God desires peace for them, and God dramatically puts that very thing—the thing that they need to learn—that God isn't intending for their harm; He's intending for their peace. He puts it on the Egypt, on the lips of the Egyptian servant. But they come to the. Egyptian, the steward of the house Again convinced that they are in harm's way, and this is what the steward of the house says to them Be at peace Don't be afraid God is with you <laughs> What a rebuke to the Covenant family Here's the family that God puts his name upon, but instead of, not, instead of teaching the nations how to live in subordination to God and say, peace to you from God Almighty. Here's an Egyptian speaking to this family, saying, peace, God is with you. And it seems to get their attention again, where they're being woken up to the idea of God and God's presence. But it is a severe mercy. A mercy that has come through severe circumstances. But this appears to be a moment of transformation for them as well. Because they face yet one more test in the story. And it is at the meal that Joseph provides for them. This time it is not a test with severity, as he has tested them before. This time it is a test with generosity. They are seated in descending order according to birthright. That's why the narration says that they are amazed. They're seated there from Reuben, Simeon, Judah, right down to Benjamin, the youngest, and they're they're amazed. How did this happen? Who knew this? And they're amazed, and then the food shows up, and and Benjamin gets five times as much as anybody else. Imagine Joseph looking at him. What are you going to do? He's my favorite. I like him more than you all. (laughs) This is a bit of a test for this group of guys. This is the very thing that sent this family spiraling downhill 20 years ago. This is my favorite. Look at his jacket. What are you going to do? Oh, we're going to throw him in a pit. That's what we're going to do. It's an enormous test of jealousy, of insubordination. And the story ends, this chapter ends with, and they were married. And they ate and drank together. The brothers step up. What the family is discovering is a peace from God that is found in God's greatness and in God's goodness. But it comes through submission. Just like the Egyptian must have felt like a sucker punch on the nose when he says, peace be with you. God is with you. Sometimes that's a sucker punch for Christians when we say the Christian life is one of submission, of trusting in Him, that His ways are good because His ways are the ways of the Almighty, and that peace is found in submission, not in the open ground, not in the open places where we sometimes foolishly describe liberty, but in the place with boundaries, in the place that is fortified, The place that is secure the place that is defined for us by wisdom that is far greater than us even when we are blind and our circumstances yell at us everything the opposite of God is great and God is good but that is the inclination of the Christian soul that the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it would you please pray with me stand first please and let's pray would you please take a moment just to in your own soul to Speak to God. Where your deepest thirstings and longings are to fall towards Him and to trust in Him. Help us, O Lord, as your people. To be acquainted with you to have a connection with you to trust you for your glory we pray amen these are words from psalm 9 the lord is a stronghold for the oppressed a stronghold in times of trouble and those who know your name put their trust in you for you oh lord Have not forsaken those who seek you. Amen. Have a great Lord's Day. God bless you.